Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Hello out there, ladies and gentlemen. This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with another edition of Banal of America Audio, Season 1. It is December 3rd, 2005. We are back after our two-week hiatus. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving, didn't spend too much money on Black Friday, and have resumed your normal weekly schedule, as have we. Let's get down to business. This week, it is Adam Go Rightly. Some of you may not have heard of Adam Go Rightly, so let me tell you a little bit about him. He's a self-described crackpot historian, the author of The Shadow Over Santa Susanna, Black Magic, Mind Control, and the Manson Family Mythos, and The Prankster and the Conspiracy, the story of Kerry Thornley and how he met Oswald and inspired the counterculture. He's also the author of the newly released The Beast of Adam Go Rightly, Collected Rantings, 1992-2004. to He's been a guest on radio talk shows across the U.S. and Canada, and his articles have appeared in numerous publications such as The Excluded Middle, UFO Magazine, Paranoia, and Steam Shovel Press. His website is www.adamgorightly.com. This interview was recorded on December 1st, 2005, a scant 48 hours ago, so it's ultra fresh. Let's rock and roll. Adam Go Rightly on Banal of America Audio, Season 1. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're going to take a little departure from our usual sort of UFO stylings this week with a very special guest, Adam Go Rightly. He's the author of a few books here, uh, The Shadow Over Santa Susanna, Black Magic, Mind Control, and the Manson Family Mythos, and The Prankster and the Conspiracy, the story of Kerry Thornley and how he met Oswald and inspired the counterculture. And Adam's a pretty well-known character in the conspiracy world. He's been a guest on radio talk shows across the U.S., Canada, and Ireland. His articles have appeared in numerous publications, such as The Excluded Middle, UFO Magazine, Paranoia, and Steam Shovel Press. And you can contact Adam at your own risk at www.adamgorightly.com. That's uh, A-D-A-M-G-O-R-I-G-H-T-L-Y.com. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thank you for checking out uh, an All-America Audio and appear on the show. Yeah, very good. Thanks for having me today. And, uh, yeah, we can always talk UFOs, too. Oh, I'm sure we're going to get into that. I'm sure we are. Um, well, first of all, why don't you tell me a little bit about your background, where, you know, um, just give me a little bio sketch here for the people who are unfamiliar with Adam Go Rightly. Uh, my writing career really took off in the uh, early 90s when the whole zine movement was going on, the underground press, and I got pretty heavily involved with that back in that uh, period. Uh, with uh, magazines like uh, Steam Shovel Press and Paranoia was just starting back then and uh, the Excluded Middle, Crash Collusion. It seemed there was a bit of a uh, renaissance during that time with people who were involved in uh, conspiracy theories and UFOs and paranormal and psychedelic and all that kind of happy horse shit. And uh, <laughs> I dived head first into it and uh, still going uh, what is this, 14 or 15 years later? Sweet, sweet. And um, now, how, if you don't mind me asking, how old are you? Because I couldn't get a gauge on your age from your writing, which I guess I might be a compliment. I'm not sure. 45. Oh, okay. 
Born March 12, 1960, share the same birthday with Albert Einstein and Jack Kerouac. Oh, nice. Sweet. And probably some other losers, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, tell me as much as you want to tell me about the uh, the origins of your name, because um, I was suspicious that that was your real name, and Greg Bishop blew your cover on, oh, damn on, the, him. on the intro uh, on what are the acknowledgments or whatever in, the, in your book. You know... Th- I'm not sure how I came up with that name, but it uh, evolved when I was working on a piece uh, for uh, Cl- Crash Collusion magazine called UFOs, LSD, and Me, and I really didn't want to put uh, my real name on the piece, so somehow I plucked Adam Go Rightly uh, out of the air, and it stuck uh, all these years. I got a name with that name, so I've kind of stuck with it for my writing career. So it's not like a, a cover to protect yourself or anything like that, other than for the the, uh, the LSD article. Uh, well, there, there's some other reasonings uh, I'd rather not go into, but uh, <laughs> that's one of the reasons I started using it. Nice. All right. And then uh, you build yourself as a crackpot historian. So why don't you um, tell us a little bit about what how you come to that definition and what that means for you. <laughs> Something else I seem to pluck out of the air. <laughs> I've written about a lot of um, fringe characters. Uh, my book on Carrie Thornley, he was certainly a fringe character in this latest book, The uh, Beast of uh, Go Rightly. I write about uh, characters like Rock and Roll and Stewart, who was that uh, psycho you saw back at sporting events back in the uh, 70s and 80s with the uh, Tutti Frutti Psychedelic Afro, I write about a roller derby star named Psycho Ronnie Reigns and a whole host of uh, characters. Uh, So that's why I've defined myself as a crackpot historian. I'm not necessarily a crackpot, at least not to any uh, great degree, but I've kind of uh, gravitated towards, you know, writing about strange and unusual people and subject matter. There you go. And then uh, in in the press release, I saw it said you were a 33-degree Freemason. Is that like a joke? Are you really a 33-degree Freemason, and how do you become one? Uh, that's a joke. Okay. Well, I had to, I wanted to ask. Cause, you no, know. it isn't. <laughs> What's that? Oh, Nothing. man. <laughs> Actually, I'm a uh, 23rd-degree uh, Discordian. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah. yeah uh, the reason, once again, I was just throwing together a press release and uh, that kind of had a good ring to it, a crackpot historian and 33rd degree mason. So yeah, there you go. Well, I was going to ask you if you uh, if you if you consider now. Also, I should have mentioned too. I forgot, uh, but you mentioned it anyway. But the, your latest book here is the Beast of Adam Go Rightly, and that's your collected rantings. Of, yes, sir. From, from 1992 to 2004, and that's a fantastic book. Hey, thank and, you. Um, yeah, well, I just read it a couple weekends ago, and I really enjoyed it. I flew right through it because it was just an awesome read. Cool, I'm getting some uh, good feedback on this book. Uh, you never know, throwing together a um, collection of pieces, how uh, marketable it is, because, uh, you know, usually publishers are looking for uh, just uh, single themes. So uh, we'll, we'll see how this uh, does. I've gotten, once again, uh, good feedback. One. One person told me it's the ultimate uh, bathroom book. You can, uh, you know. 
I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, would you say uh, you take a lighthearted view of uh, the paranormal? Because that seemed to come across in, in the writings. Would you? Uh, I, I would say generally, I try to in my writings uh, try to keep a humorous perspective. It, times I go over the top, but other times, you know, I'm pretty serious about the uh, subject matter, but just uh, my writing voice tends to be uh, a bit sardonic as well, so, uh, and that's a problem sometimes. People probably take me less seriously than <laughs> yeah. uh, I probably uh, would like them to, but uh, hey, that's it's just the way it comes out. Yeah, you know, you can't, uh, you know, you gotta just put your art out there, right? And yeah. People and and you know, I've written some. Uh, I wouldn't say actually hoax articles, but uh, you know, I've done a few prank articles <laughs> as well throughout the years. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> what about what? Well, what kind of prank articles? Let's. Uh, no, I'm ju I'm just thinking. Uh, one thing I put out there one time had to do uh, with uh, Magic Johnson and. Uh, Michael Jordan and how Magic Johnson was actually on the dark side. If you look at uh, Michael Jordan, he wears the magical number 23 mm -hmm. on his jersey, and uh, Magic Johnson was uh, 32, and I, I went into a bunch of <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> things like that. And you, you can just kind of roll with things like that, and if you're looking for uh, <laughs> yeah, I see where you're going. theories hard enough, you can find them. So I, I've done kind of pieces like that, whimsical uh, things. And then, I, you know, I've gotten uh, pretty heavily into writing about MKUltra and mind control. I, I take all of that, uh, that topic very seriously because, you know, there's evidence out there to uh, show that uh, people have been uh, screwed with over the years by government mind control experimentation. So let's just roll right into the beast of Adam Go Rightly. Um, now, it's probably the most generic question you'll ever get, or you get anyway, is, um, and it's probably really hard for you to pick one because they're all like your kids, but do you have a favorite piece in the, uh, in the Beast of? Oh, um, shoot, let's have a little dead air here for a second. <laughs> I open this up. Uh, uh, no, I don't. <laughs> I'm kind of fond of uh, UFOs, LSD, and me. And there's really only a small excerpt in there from uh, that longer article, which appeared in Crash Collusion. So that's a favorite. Uh, usually my favorite is the latest thing I'm working on. Probably the uh, latest or, uh, yeah, the latest piece in this is Tuesday Weld is Watching You about occult secret societies in uh, Santa Cruz, which was a bit of a humorous adventure piece. So I'd say that's my favorite just because it's probably the last thing I worked on that went into this book. Nice. So is the book organized, uh, so it's not organized in chronological order? Uh, pretty much it is chronological, but I put that, uh, the Tuesday Weld piece, uh, closer up just once again because I liked it. For the most part, it's kind of, it's pretty much laid out chronologically, yeah, as the pieces were written over the years. All right, well, why don't you talk a little bit about that Tuesday Well one, because that's actually one of my favorites and on the <laughs> list here of ones, and especially I, I wrote down uh, the Jeff Turner experience. Yeah, you should uh, interview Mr. Turner. I, I'll consider it. Is he, is he accessible? Yes. <laughs> I'm trying to uh, promote uh, him to get out there and uh, 
do some radio interviews and stuff, and it seems like he's amenable to it. So uh, oh, yeah. after the interest, we could talk about that later. Oh, definitely. I, um, oh, a couple of years back through the Internet, I met a gentleman by the name of uh, Douglas Hawes, and we got to talking, and he was throwing out these uh, theories about uh, these, this occult secret society based out of uh, Santa Cruz and how um, uh, different people had been involved in this uh, society over the years, which basically was an offshoot of the uh, Illuminati. And at one time, uh, he claimed that Tuesday Weld had been a high priest of the Bavarian Illuminati and basically oversaw the organization uh, during the uh, early to late 60s and it was basically the person influencing all these rock groups from the Beatles to the Rolling Stones to the uh, Beach Boys, uh, influencing them towards, uh, you know, putting out subliminal messages in their music, uh, promoting this Illuminati agenda, which I, when I first heard this, I thought it was the most absurd theory I'd ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's certainly a fascinating one. Uh, uh, just to go on a little bit more with this, um, sometime in the uh, late 70s, or actually early 70s, uh, a person with the initials KM basically began a feud with uh, Tuesday Weld, and uh, according to uh, Doug Hawes and uh, his informant, Jeff Turner, uh, they had this whole um, satanic or Illuminati uh, feud going on, and uh, the person with the initials KM took over Tuesday's Wells role in this occult secret uh, society, and uh, waged a campaign of terror there in uh, Santa Cruz and on the West Coast uh, for many, many years. So that, in a nutshell, is uh, part of the uh, story there. Uh, Jeff Turner, the one who's putting out these uh, allegations and these uh, theories, <laughs> has, uh, I met with him, quite a colorful character. And uh, he's now uh, an adherent of uh, none other than Tiffany, the, the pop singer, and believes that she is a uh, leader of what he calls the all-nation movements, that Tiffany is involved with uh, Sufis and all these others. And uh, she's basically taken over and put a good spin on all the work of uh, Tuesday Weldon and the lady with the name KM and is basically trying to bring about a new world order of sorts. So that, that that's the kind of, that's the what, what weird, wild and wooly uh, story of uh, Jeff Turner. One, one thing that's interesting is if you look back in newspaper articles from the uh, early uh, 80s, uh, Jeff Turner was um, uh, arrested for uh, stalking Tiffany. Yeah, I saw that in the, uh, the article. <laughs> I was like, what is going on here? Right, but, it, but nowadays he has, still has contact with uh, Tiffany, and he claimed that he had actually uh, 
through a, their families had been uh, there had been a secret marriage and that he is Tiffany's uh, secret husband and that Tiffany still communicates with him and once again he sees Tiffany as this uh, leader of this all nations movement and that she's also a time traveler and all these other uh, strange things. Now on the surface you look at this store and you go, wow, this guy's off his rocker. Yeah. yeah but fine. and I've I've talked to um, other people that you know. You bring up these allegations about Tuesday Weld, and they'll say, yeah, there's uh, something there. Something was going on with uh, her and also this KM person. There's been other people besides uh, Jeff Turner and Douglas Haas who have um, heard and seen things going on. And so I haven't directly uh, interviewed uh, all you know some of some of the folks that uh, Doug Hawes c says c that can confirm this story, but uh, it appears that you know there's more than meets the eye of uh, somebody who's off his rocker. This spinning uh, some uh, tills now. Uh, he, uh, Jeff Turner might have uh, confabulated uh, a lot of the stories he's uh, he, he he has told me and. Doug Hawes, but uh, at the core, there might be something to all this uh, madness. Yeah, it's pretty. Uh, it's it's it, at first you're kind of laughing, and then as it goes along, you're sort of like, hmm. <laughs> so it's very intriguing. It would be something uh, to ask people. Uh, that's what Douglas Hawes says. That uh, oh, for one thing, Jeff Turner's stories have remained consistent over the years, and that when. They've asked other people, you know, once again about uh, is there anything to this uh, Tuesday Weld story? They'll raise their eyes and kind of nod their heads. Uh, people in Hollywood uh, know about this, but they don't want to talk about it. It's kind of like the uh, relationship between the uh, Manson family and uh, the movie industry and the recording industry back in the uh, 60s. People don't want to talk about it, even though. Uh, those relationships were going on back then. So now you write a lot about the um, stuff that was going on in the '60s around California. Did you grow up around that area, or is it just some a place where you seem to think there's a lot of uh, esoteric uh, breeding ground for you know research? Uh, yes, yes, and yes. I grew up <laughs> in <laughs> Central California. Still live here in the uh, uh, Sierra Nevadas. And so, well, yeah, I gravitated with that story about Santa Cruz. I'm only a couple miles from there, so it was easy to take a uh, run over there and uh, talk to some of these folks. Um, and so, um, yeah, I'm interested in California history, and I also have a fascination with the uh, 60s uh, counterculture as well, and that comes up quite a bit in my writing. Oh, yeah, definitely. Now, I'm on a side note here, the poems. You include some poems in the book, which is sort of a nice little uh, side side light. Well, would. thank you. Once again, I, you know, kind of reticent about uh, putting poetry in collections because uh, I, you know, myself personally, uh, there's not a whole lot of poetry out there these days I'd be interested in anyway. So I, 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 it's nice to hear you say that. I, I, I'm not sure how really receptive people are to uh, 
poetry these days? Oh, I thought it was cool. I mean, they weren't like super long or anything either. You know, if it had been like six pages, I would have been like, <laughs> I would have been like, what's up with this six-page poem in the middle of the book? But these were yeah, like, I I really uh, cut my teeth initially uh, writing uh, verse and lyrics, poetry. Uh, worked with uh, rock bands in the uh, mid to late '70s when I was a teenager and. I compose music and lyrics a bit myself these days, so that, that's kind of where my writing started and it evolved in later on working, uh, trying my hand at uh, fiction and uh, eventually uh, spent most of my time uh, writing nonfiction. But uh, I think I've always had a sense uh, and a knack for writing uh, poetry, I think. Nice, nice. Um, okay, now I want to talk to you uh, about the, the mind control and MK Ultra aspects of uh, your writing and your research, because as you said earlier, you find that to be a pretty serious topic. I think it's a, a very important topic that um, some people tell in, a lot of people are, just don't want to touch it. It's a very important uh, aspect of esoteric research, what do you think? I would say so, uh, most definitely, uh, just from the aspect of the whole Manchurian candidate uh, conspiracy theories that have been out there for years when you look at uh, all the different assassinations over and over you've had these lone nuts who sort of uh, fit the profile of somebody whose uh, mind has been tampered with uh, specifically somebody like uh, Sirhan Sirhan who really had no memory of the actual event of the assassination of uh, RFK and there's, you know, he, uh, Mark David Chapman uh, fits the same uh, profile and, uh, you know, I definitely think uh, all those uh, guys I just mentioned have been Patsies and MK Ultra uh, subjects. Uh, you look at the documentation going back the late 50s, early 60s, there indeed was a uh, government-sponsored uh, uh, mind control project going on that uh, went up by a lot of names and there was different uh, different uh, types of programs going on, you know, with uh, using uh, drugs, LSD, and uh, a lot of people uh, suspect as well as I do that uh, LSD was basically flooded into the uh, counterculture as a, uh, you know, kind of full-blown uh, mind control experiment, uh, Kesey and uh, all those guys back in the uh, San Francisco in the early uh, 60s uh, basically ended up, uh, the LSD they were first exposed to was the, of the uh, stuff CIA was given to all these uh, research facilities. Now, I've just thrown out a lot of things there. Uh, in the... Uh, Later in the uh, 70s, when these revelations about MKUltra surfaced during congressional investigations, at, at that time the uh, CIA said they discontinued the program back then, but uh, most researchers, myself included, believed it, it continued on and evolved into uh, Beyond Drugs uh, to using uh, different types of uh, uh, microwaves and uh, implants and all the, these other technological things to uh, 
continue, uh, you know, the whole mind control program. So you think what uh, what those of us who are trying to figure out what it's all about, um, you think we were only kind of scratching at the surface of what really might, uh, how big this thing might be? Um, yeah, and there's, it's interesting if you do a, a web search about uh, mind control and the electronic harassment, as they uh, call it, using different uh, types of low-frequency devices and, once again, implants and those types of things. There's different theories about uh, who's involved these days, who's behind all this. There's one lady named Eleanor White who suggests that it's basically vigilantes these days that are involved uh, in a lot of the uh, mind control harassment for uh, whatever reasons. Yeah. Now, interestingly enough, um, I had some incidents, and this is dating back, uh, oh, five or six years ago now, where I felt that I had uh, some type of uh, microwave or some kind of device being beamed at myself, and it happened in two places uh, about, uh, oh, I would say, six or seven times. One was sitting on my couch in my house in the exact same position, and another was in a Mexican restaurant and at the same table there in the same seat. And what uh, happened was my body temperature went up. I'm not sure how much. My face uh, flushed red, and this happened over the like a uh, period of uh, four or five minutes, you know, I've had fever before where my body temperature was around 100, 103 or so, and this felt like it was a lot hotter than that. And my, you know, I was with my wife on all these occasions, and she saw how my face basically turned a beet red, and then after a few minutes, this stopped. And it was, it's one of those odd things, you know, I'm not a hundred percent sure of anything yeah. you know it could have been something I ate or who knows exactly what went on but it you know it's one of those odd things that have happened to me over the years I've had undoubtedly my phone uh, tapped and uh, you know I've heard this happen talking to certain uh, people for instance uh, Greg Bishop on occasion <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, Oh, other folks, and I was doing the uh, Curie Thornley book, uh, Robert Anton Wilson was one. Numerous people, you know, I, I, uh, some of the same folks, anytime I talk to them, it's like, oh, what the heck's going on with the phone? I've had my mail tampered with over the years, and so I really don't know anything for sure, I guess I sh should say, but I suspect a lot of things. Yeah. Now, when you were having these um, attacks or, or fits or whatever you want to call them, um, was there stuff going on in your life that you think would have would have uh, caused that caused whatever forces to bring that upon you? Like, were you working on something at the time that was particularly hot? Well, uh, that was in the period I was working on the uh, Manson book, and you know, there's uh, material in once again the Manson book is the Shadow over Santa Susana, Black Magic Mind Control, and the Manson Family Mythos. <laughs> Available from finer booksellers, but uh, I got into a lot of the uh, uh, conspiracy theories and talked about, once again, mind control and Manchurian candidates and 
that type of stuff in the uh, book, one might ask, how's that uh, deal with, you know, how's that relate to the uh, Manson family? And uh, maybe you just need to read the book to find out about all of that. Uh, there was a, a researcher named Mae Russell who uh, suggested, and she, she was a famous conspiracy theorist that died in the late 80s who was heavily involved in uh, Kennedy assassination research and had a radio program for years and years anyway. She uh, claimed that the Manson family uh, were basically a military mind control experiment. And that's what first aroused my interest in researching about the uh, Manson family. And I got into all that heavily in the book just to answer my own questions. Was there anything to that? And uh, the book itself then took on a life of its own. I felt if I was going to talk about the all the conspiracy theory stuff, I need to put it all in context and uh, basically uh, look at Manson's childhood and the whole history of the Manson family. So um, over the about three years, three or four years later, when I finished the book, it, it was nearly 600 uh, pages. Oh wow! And uh, so I really uh, kind of got away from answering your uh, question. Uh, <laughs> I, I was looking at a lot of the uh, these type of uh, things uh, during the period I was writing the Manson book. So who knows? Okay, and um, actually, you sort of segued right into the Manson question. I was, oh, wait, let, let me get back to uh, the mind control thing because I forgot about one more thing. You sort of tie that in a little bit to the UFO phenomenon, so yeah. we may as well talk about that. What, how do you tie the mind control into the UFO thing? How do you think that they may be related? Obviously, I mean, well, one fa one fascinating book, and it, it's actually it never was published. You can still probably find it on the uh, internet. Uh, Sam is that document uh, called The Controllers by uh, Martin Cannon. Did you ever see that? No, no. Uh, that, that's, that surfaced in the uh, late 80s and just blew my mind uh, when I read it. His theory was basically that um, a lot of the, uh, or all of the abduction, UFO abduction phenomena was basically a cover for uh, mind control. Military mind control. Okay. They, ju they just used that to uh, mask, to cover up what they were uh, doing, you know, and they uh, basically plant these memories in their heads that they were actually uh, alien greys or whatever uh, involved in the abductions and planting the implants and all that type of stuff. So that's that kind of how it figures in. I was. You know, when I read that book, finally, it made a lot of sense to me. Uh, once again, I don't uh, subscribe 100% to any one theory. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's one of the ways that I think uh, UFOs tie into mind control or altered states of uh, consciousness. I think altered states of uh, consciousness are directly intertwined with the whole UFO phenomenon. Yeah, because uh, like as you said, you in your book you have a, an excerpt of um, UFOs, LSD, and me, and about that's about your own UFO experience. Right. And uh, what was that like? Because I've never seen a UFO. I've talked to people that have, obviously. Um, I people I've never heard anyone like downplay it. it seems like a life changing experience. So what? yeah, well, it definitely definitely was. Uh, 
I'll recount the incident for you as uh, concisely as I can. Uh, this it happened in the uh, late 70s in a central California burg, highly populated city, and uh, a friend and a friend of myself and I uh, dropped some acid. Several other people did, and we were kind of hanging out, and the vibes got a little bit heavy, so we decided to take off, go for a walk along a levee in town, and um, even before we hit the uh, levee, we were joking around, you know, what if we saw a UFO, you know? <laughs> Nobody would believe us, you know? We'd be telling the yeah, that, you know, it'd be ridiculous, and uh, sure enough, uh, not long afterwards, uh, we started seeing a whole host of UFOs. The first one I saw affected me so much that I fell to one knee. Oh, wow. And uh, we were seeing the same uh, sights and sounds, but it was something like out of, uh, oh, you know, the, the UFOs themselves were cartoonish looking. Uh, you had some of the classical UFOs. I mean, they're all different shapes and sizes. You had cigar-shaped UFOs, but then you had other ones with multicolored uh, propellers and all, all this strange, probably, I don't remember the exact number, but six or seven of these we uh, saw over the course walking along the levee, you know, over the course of... Uh, Oh, 45 minutes or so. Oh, wow. Um, right before, uh, after we saw the last last one, we were walking back, retracing our steps. A uh, beam of light came out of the sky. Oh, man. And it was, uh, once again, I'm not sure on the distance, 50, 100 feet away, emanating from nothing we could see. And that, that uh, basically uh, uh, ended the experience. That, that's it in a uh, nutshell. But, uh, you know, the odd thing about, okay, sure, you're on LSD, you're seeing all this stuff. But uh, both my friend and I saw the same exact, same, exact same thing. So if they were hallucinations, they were, they were uh, dual hallucinations. Yeah, that's it. I don't know if that rare that thing is telling you it would be pretty unlikely. Now, a theory that made a lot of sense to me, kind of explaining this stuff, John Kill talked about in one of his books. I don't remember exactly which one, but he got into talking about uh, psychedelics and altered states, and um, what he felt was when you tap into these other realms through psychedelics or whatever means it's like you're seeing into another dimension or you're seeing uh, in infrared oh man yeah for instance yeah. and so that's possibly what could have happened to us we you know the uh, drug whatever triggered this altered states altered state where we could see into another dimension that is possibly all around us all the time, you know, but it's, we normally can't access it. Yeah, that, that speaks to the, um, what I've been hearing a lot about lately, too, is the uh, ayahuasca and the DMT-type research that's going on. And, yeah. Um, that seems, that sort of sounds pretty similar to what, uh, what they're saying coming out of that research. And Terrence McKenna yeah. talked about uh, 
psychedelics and UFOs and their relationship in a lot of his books. Uh, what's interesting about DMT, and I've never done uh, DMT, but the experience, it seems to be repeatable through a large group of people. They go to the same relative place and see a lot of the uh, same thing, and there's kind of a playful nature to the experience, which I equate to my UFO experience. Uh, the UFOs seem more like playful uh, entities. Oh. And, <laughs> and you get into talking about this stuff, and it puts a whole different uh, spin on, you know, talking about UFOs as opposed to nut, nuts and bolt crafts and, you know, serious conversations about, you know, uh, can they actually, you know, uh, solid objects with uh, grazed from zeta reticuli to, you know, is this all a part of the human experience? They're maybe not necessarily from outer space, they're, they inhabit some of the same realms we do, we just can't always access them. Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely part of the UFO uh, phenomenon, that, and um, I think maybe it gets downplayed because of uh, the association with the drug use, not, like, not you in particular, but in general. You know? Well, sure, and you, you can discount, discount everything I said, you know, it's easy to write that off, but uh, until you've uh, you know, somebody has actually experimented with uh, different uh, uh, mind-expanding chemicals. Can they appreciate the weight of those experiences? You know, I've, yeah. uh, once again, you know, they've had a profound impact on my life. And that's not to say <laughs> I haven't done any uh, psychedelics in a long, long time. But uh, you know, they, they still have that impact upon me, and they, they changed my life. Yeah. Um, no, sort of throwing back here to the 60s um, counterculture and the Manson family, what event, What sort of drove you to do, because I'm a huge Manson fan, I couldn't believe, I'm going to have to get this book. <laughs> I was psyched when I saw that, and I, I loved the excerpt in, in, uh, in The Beast of. Yeah, um, well, I first got interested in Manson, uh, I guess it was in the... Uh, Mid-70s, 76 or so, there, the Helter Skelter uh, movie, uh, made-for-TV movie came on. And uh, I remember getting together with a bunch of friends, and we got a bunch of beer and just watched this. And <laughs> uh, it was a crack-up, uh, actually. I mean, uh, pretty uh, horrid story and tell. But the guy who played the part of Manson in that was... Uh, Steve Relsbeck, who just did a wonderful job, and, he, and anyway, I got got interested, started reading the uh, books over the years, and uh, you know, it just seemed like a mind blowing tale. Then uh, later on, as I was telling you before, I heard these conspiracy theories about the Manson family. So uh, it was one of those things. Previously, I'd got involved in reading about the Kennedy assassination, so I got kind of obsessed with that for a number of years, and same thing kind of happened when I uh, looked into the uh, Manson family. There's just tons of books and all kinds of things out yeah, there yeah. talking about it, so it's sorting through all that and trying to make some uh, sense out of it and putting my own spin on the thing. Now, what did you... Um 
what kind of conclusions did you come to from your research in the Manson family? Obviously, you didn't, um, you know, you know, push one particular theory or anything. But what, sort of, in your mind, what was going on with that whole story? Well, um, I think it, uh, you know, it's closely related to. Uh, once again, we're talking about uh, Manson's role with the uh, music industry in Hollywood, and. Um, I think he was basically uh, uh, pissed off about uh, not getting a recording contract, and that, that's one of the things that uh, led to the uh, murders. Bear in mind that uh, Sharon Tate and the folks uh, murdered at the uh, Polanski residence that night, that had previ previously, uh, actually was still owned at that time by... Uh, Doris Day's son, Terry Melcher, who was a big uh, music producer in uh, uh, L.A. during that period, produced the uh, birds and uh, the monkeys and uh, had been talking to uh, Manson about uh, doing an album. And Manson had cut uh, various sessions with, uh, for instance, uh, Dennis Wilson, of the Beach Boys was a big supporter of Manson, so they had cut some demo recordings and had this going on, and uh, basically uh, Melcher got kind of uh, wigged out by Manson because he knew him, know him better, and uh, uh, stepped out of the picture. And uh, I think uh, he, Manson, I probably knew that Melcher wasn't living in the house anymore, but was leaving a message with those murders. And I think also drugs were uh, heavily involving and not only the Mansonoids being brainwashed to a certain extent by uh, drugs, but uh, drug dealing, drug, drug burns and these type of things. Uh, one of the uh, victims at the uh, Polanski residence was named Wojtek Frakowski. He was a friend of Polanski and he was a uh, big dealer in uh, uh, different drugs during that period, and, I, and it appears that uh, the Manson family uh, were uh, embroiled in all of this, and so there might have been multiple reasons. Once again, uh, drug deals that went sour, and yeah, yeah. Manson being pissed off by the whole uh, music industry that they had screwed him over. Yeah, and it sounded like, uh, from the excerpt that I read, that Manson... Um it's sort of like Hollywood's and the music industry's dirty little secret that um, Mason was sort of running around in those circles back in those days. Yeah, oh yeah, exactly. And so, what, like, how prominent was Manson with some of these celebrities and, and music types? Like, were they they kind of they knew him before all this went down, right? Well, Manson, uh, for a period of time, lived at uh, Dennis Wilson's house. Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. That that was one connection. Uh, I mean, uh, Dennis Wilson was really taken in with uh, Manson. Uh, Manson recorded at uh, Brian Wilson's house uh, slash recording studio. Uh, Neil Young thought uh, very highly of Manson, thought he was a great poet, <laughs> songwriter. I think uh, Manson gave Neil Young a motorcycle, if I remember exactly. Uh, there was rumors that... Uh, the Manson family were like at parties, for instance, with uh, members of the Mamas and Papas, John Phillips, uh, 
that the Manson family spent a lot of time with uh, Cass Elliot, and uh, so you, you hear all the, these different things. He was very involved in the uh, Topanga Canyon scene at that time where everybody gravitated to during that uh, period. Yeah, and so and so he was he was trying to get this he was trying to sort of make it in the in the music industry. But do you think um, he was just destined to flake out? <laughs> uh, probably uh, so. <laughs> uh, and such he did. So yeah, he must have been uh, destined to. Um, okay, now and uh, I also I want to mention too because you don't really hear too much about it, but you always hear sort of some discussion. And that's your eyes wide shut uh, examination. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really interesting uh, because you just don't hear too many people. You hear people talk about it, but only in roundabout ways. So I'm glad someone took the time to um, to look into the movie and really dissect it. That's uh, for people who are listening to the interview. If you liked eyes wide shut and you're into the esoteric world, this is a great read, uh, and that's part of the B stuff. Yeah, that uh, piece has really resonated with a uh, lot of folks, uh, particularly uh, people who suspect they've been or claim that they've been uh, victims of uh, mind control. Yeah. Uh, once again, I, you know, I've done a lot of research into uh, mind control and what uh, certain people uh, claim are different uh, programming matrices that are used. Uh, for instance, uh, imagery from the uh, Wizard of Oz yeah. appears to have been uh, used in a lot of these uh, mind programming uh, scenarios, uh, stuff of that nature. So when I uh, finally saw Eyes Wide Shut, I saw all these uh, things going on in the film that seemed to be allusions uh, to what is known as uh, monarch uh, mind control uh, programming. So I, I basically just went through the uh, film and everything I noted, I, or everything I saw in there, I made uh, a note of it and put it all into this uh, article and kind of uh, ran with it just uh, threw my impressions out there. And uh, I don't know if I'm, how ac totally accurate I am uh, but I, I definitely touched a nerve there, and so probably out of all the articles in the uh, book, it's the one I continually get uh, feedback on from different people. Oh, no kidding, really? Yeah. That's pretty interesting. Um, and what do you think Kubrick was uh, was up to there? Do you think he knew something? Um, and, yeah, first of all, do you think he knew something, and then sort of does that lead to, do you think that uh, that led to his demise? Uh, yes, and possibly. <laughs> I think he obviously had some knowledge of these esoteric uh, things involved with, uh, you know, the whole monarch uh, mind control and MK Ultra. Uh, you know, whether it had something to do with his death is quite possible, but I don't think anybody's really investigated that too deeply. I sure, certainly couldn't say. Uh, definitively or conclusively that's uh, you know, attributed to his death, but it's certainly very possible. Yeah, it seems kind of mysterious, and if you kind of look at his work leading up to that, he sort of, um, he sort of like shines light on some stuff that's pretty esoteric in and of itself. Yeah. 
especially now while I'm thinking of uh, Clockwork Orange when they when they try to give uh, Ben that guy's mind, pretty much. Mm-hmm. So, yep. you know, maybe uh, for all we know, Kubrick could have, uh, he probably had an inside track somewhere into what was going on behind the scenes. Yeah, and um, what uh, some uh, conspiracy theorists uh, suggest, uh, for instance, uh, so a guy named uh, Michael Anthony uh, Hoffman who's written quite a bit about this and what he calls the revelation of the method or the making manifest of all that's unseen. And uh, it's basically what he says, it's a, a Freemason conspiracy or a conspiracy by the cryptocracy that uh, they're basically running Hollywood and using these movies to uh, slowly over a period of time reveal what's going on uh, behind the uh, scenes to the public. And by the time the, the public uh, understands exactly what's going on behind the scenes, it'll be too late. Yeah, actually, you uh, you must be like some kind of mind reader here because I, <laughs> on, <laughs> on the list here of uh, talking points is Michael Hoffman because uh, as soon as I saw you cited Michael Hoffman, I was psyched because I'm a huge fan of uh, his book. Um, Oh, I forget now the name of it. Secret Societies and Psychological Warfare. Exactly. Yes, I'm a huge fan of that book. It's one of the creepiest books I've read. Uh, and, <laughs> it's, um, it's it's one of those books. You know, it all seems a lot of it just so damn uh, far far out and off the wall, but uh, something about it, you know, rings true. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's a spooky book. I'm uh, I'm always uh, I'm always impressed when someone cites him too because you don't hear too much about it. Uh, well, a, a, a major influence on him was James Shelby Downard. Oh, yeah? And uh, are you familiar with their uh, piece, King Kill 33? Uh, that rings a bell, but I'm not, um, not anything that I could speak to. Yeah, it basically deals with the uh, Kennedy assassination, how it was a Freemasonic conspiracy, oh, okay. how, yep. how, it, how it was based on uh, that long lines, longitude and latitude, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, daily plazas on the 33 degree, 33, uh, degree and all the, these type of things. And uh, right now I'm working on a uh, long piece about James Shelby Downard and his life. So that's the latest thing I'm working on, who once again was a big influence on uh, Michael Anthony Hoffman. Nice, nice. Is Hoffman still around nowadays? Or? Oh, yeah. Oh, he is? He's very accessible, too. Oh, oh cool. I've, I've been in contact recently. I plan to interview him at some point uh, for this project. Uh, one of the things about uh, Hoffman is uh, he's a revisionist historian, so he catches yes. a lot of flack about that, and a lot of people, uh, you know, refuse just to... Uh, have anything to do with him or consider his conspiracy or paranormal work just because he's, you know, also written about, you know, the uh, Holocaust being a hoax. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that too about him, that uh, he catches a lot of heat for that, and, and uh, that's just uh, a portion of what he writes about, so sure, it yeah. kind of hurts his, his overall work, but I, I found what he wrote in uh, Secret Society and Psychological Warfare to be just a wild book. Yeah, <laughs> and um, and the risk, particularly what you had spoken to was uh, the revelation of method, which I thought was uh, pretty prescient 
of an observation by him. I think there might be something to that. Well, I, th I, I certainly do, too, and I think uh, it's on a par with uh, what uh, conspiracy theorist or maybe a better term that Ken Thomas uses is parapolitical uh, para researcher. Oh, that's uh, nice. I like that. By the name of uh, Mae Russell, who I mentioned uh, before, she had what she called uh, the strategy of tension, which is kind of similar to the revelation of the method. Uh, May contended that uh, uh, these different things going on in the late 60s, uh, Altamont and Kent State, and also the uh, Manson family murders were basically uh, engineered by them, those behind the scenes, yeah, yeah. the cryptocracy, to bring about this strategy of tension, which would basically create the atmosphere where people would be willing to give up their civil, civil liberties, and a police state would be ushered in under these pretexts. And a lot of people see, you know, have seen the same thing happen here with uh, 9-11. Yeah, I was going to say, that sounds a lot like today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, maybe that's the... Uh, the next stage. The, or the latest installment of May's uh, strategy of tension or Downard's uh, revelation of the method was 9-11. And uh, also uh, the uh, what happened at uh, Abu Ghraib. Oh, yeah, the prison thing? Yeah. yeah, some sort of psyops or psychological terror that was meant to go out to the public. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. It was an intentional release to uh, mess yeah. with people's minds, pretty much, and mm -hmm. condition them. Yes. Um, now, in your in your in your book here, you uh, you also have a pretty lengthy profile on uh, Carlos Castaneda. He sounds like he was a pretty big influence on you, or at least a subject you wanted to research. <laughs> Well, yeah, that ended up going what twelve or thirteen pages. So. Well, it was pretty lengthy, but it was an interesting read, and because um, I had never, I've honestly, I've never really heard of this guy before. But he's oh, not, yeah, I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> well, well, I'm, you, only, I'm only twenty five, so yeah, I'm still, okay. Still, uh, you know, I'm only about like knee high into the esoteric pool yeah, right now. I got into well, Castaneda was a, a huge influence on the sixties. Uh, Counterculture. His first book was uh, The Teachings of Don Juan, A Yaki Way of Knowledge, where, and this was basically his doctoral uh, thesis at UCLA in the mid 60s. It came out in the later uh, 60s, and he was an anthropology student, and uh, anyway, presented this uh, story where he had gone to uh, Mexico and over a period of years had become the student for this medicine man, uh, Don Juan. And uh, this uh, eventually uh, led to, uh, you know, several bestsellers uh, over the years chronicling his experiences using uh, hallucinogenic drugs with Don Juan and becoming a man of knowledge and a, a sorcerer himself. Uh, basically, for people who've looked into this, uh, you know, a lot of us have come to acknowledge that it was kind of a, uh, basically a big hoax, but uh, 
Castaneda fooled a lot of people, a lot of academics. Uh, uh, you know, popular culture was taken in by this. I uh, talk about that in the uh, piece, but also hidden in all the uh, bull data, all the uh, bullshit, was a uh, great philosopher and teacher, and uh, and so you need to separate the wheat from the chaff, really. And even though he has been kind of shown to be a hoaxer and prankster, that you know, there's some uh, cool messages and things to take out of his work. And so, was he? He was a pretty big mainstream name. Um, oh, oh, yeah. During the, yeah. what? During the sixties and. Well, really, basically, till his death here uh, a few years back. Oh, no kidding! I'm so ignorant. Oh yeah. Well, no, I'm not agreeing with you, but I know. Oh, oh yeah, he's he's huge. I got into him uh, oh, when I was in my teens and you know starting to experiment with things and it was like one of those books back then that everybody read you know it was we were reading Tolkien you know the Hobbit all that stuff was yeah. popular back then and uh, all the Castaneda books and so he had a huge uh, huge audience out there he made millions but he he was always a uh, recluse and uh, I mean uh, after I finished writing that article, uh, the story uh, continued to get uh, more bizarre. Other books that have come out about Castaneda that he was basically running a cult. Oh, really? The last years of his life. And there's a good book by uh, Amy Wallace that uh, talks about that. So in, in, in the article, you put him on par with uh, Timothy Leary and another guy, you'd say, that the triumvirate of. Um of the, uh -huh. the LSD movement, sort of. Yeah, and I forgot who the heck that was. Probably uh, Gordon Lawson. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. it. Yep, yep. Yeah, those, those three basically launched, uh, well, the psychedelic movement. They had a big part in it. Uh, Gordon Lawson really discovered the uh, magic mushroom, psilocybin. Oh, no kidding. Back in the... Uh, 50s or so, when he uh, went back and did uh, to Mexico and uh, discovered uh, the different uh, brujus or medicine workers back there, and uh, basically it was his stories and articles and experimentation. Uh, I think it, eventually he wrote an article for Life magazine in the late 50s, early 50s. 60s, which exposed, you know, the Western world to this, and then uh, not soon after, <laughs> he had uh, people wandering over there and uh, uh, looking for uh, medicine workers so they could uh, experiment with mushrooms. And, of course, we know what uh, Leary did to yeah. uh, popularize the LSD. And so, Ken, how do you think, how would you uh, compare Castaneda's influence with those two guys? Um, you know, Castaneda's influence on a whole is pr uh, probably much greater than uh, Lawson or Leary. Oh, you think so? Uh, yeah, just, uh, you know, for popularizing uh, kind of... Uh, Oh, talking about uh, Native American traditions and the use of 
medicinals and psychoactive plants. So, I mean, he, he was really during the uh, 70s and 80s and I guess he died somewhere in the 90s, uh, just a uh, huge icon. Oh, okay. And, yeah, you're just a little bit uh, too young, you know, to have uh, been part of that whole thing. But uh, I think you get into anybody in my age range who's uh, experimented, you know, with uh, and, you know, been involved in the underground or the counterculture. They all know Castaneda. He's been a big influence. And you think, um, now you said a lot of his stuff, it turns out, was probably bogus. Mm -hmm. But was... Uh, but there was some good, um, uh, let me think of the right word here, there was some good philosophy uh, cloaked under that. I, I, I think, uh, uh, you know, Castaneda was a, a very astute student of uh, metaphysics, and he, he did, you know, he did his time reading through all the great works, and he was able to synthesize all of this stuff. And, uh, you know, the time was right for him with the... Uh, 60s and the counterculture really to get his whole uh, message out. So he was he was tapping into a lot of other things, Eastern uh, religions and uh, different uh, philosophies and the whole psychedelic movement. Basically, once again, synthesizing that all of that uh, together for you know folks folks to use, kind of. And that, you know, the, uh, coming out of the 60s and the 70s, uh, people were basically creating their own self-styled religions, for want of a better term. What works for you personally, kind of, you know, disengaging themselves from organized religions and all this stuff, but uh, still tapped in, you know, it was still a religious movement or mystical movement of uh, sorts, so... You know, the Learys and the Castanetas and these guys were there kind of pointing the way. Now, do you think as he got older, um, like towards the 80s, and then like as it got later in the 80s or whatever, um, do you think he sort of, I don't want to say sold out, but um, do you think he sort of realized that now at this point he was an icon and you could sort of ride? Well, hearing uh, the recent uh, stories I heard about him, I, I don't think he sold out. I think he just uh, whacked out. He got nuts and was basically running, uh, overseeing a cult of uh, female admirers. Wow. Who shaved their heads and uh, oh, some man. of whom committed suicide after he died. Uh, oh, no. If you, if you really look into this, there, he was very reclusive somewhere in the. Uh, uh, kind of got the timeline screwed up, but he reemerged with uh, a group he called Tinson Gritty. I think I have the pronunciation wrong, but he was putting on uh, seminars and basically it was uh, movements similar to like, uh, uh, taekwondo, not Taekwondo, but what, what's the Oriental? Uh, Tai Chi, Tai Chi type uh, movements, and he put on these uh, seminars, and he had this huge group around him at this time, and uh, what it appears now, this group was women that he kind of, uh, well, for want of a better term, brainwashed and uh, 
had sexual relationships, nothing wrong with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he really uh, fucked over a lot of their uh, the heads of these uh, women. Yeah. And uh, basically had a cult around him where he was uh, just uh, a real strange scene. Now, do you think he? Um, now, do you think he sort of believed all this stuff he was pushing towards the end there, or was it just sort of like, you know, hey? You know, I'm going to take advantage of this. this. I, I think he uh, made himself, pulled himself into believing, uh, you know, what what he yeah. talked about. He he was uh, he created this illusionary world around him, and I think uh, eventually started believing it. And why do you think he was so reclusive? I I think. Uh, from what I've gathered, he wasn't comfortable with uh, fame, and part of the past of the warrior that he talks about in his book was that you had to be set aside from the rest of society, and you were on what he called the path of heart. You're basically on your own, and uh, I think uh, by being in the uh, limelight that you lose a part of yourself. He did. There was very few photos of uh, Castaneda. You know, he believed in that uh, soul catcher type thing. Only the Amish. Yeah, just this whole uh, world he'd constructed around himself. Uh, part of it being the warrior, following the path of the warrior, meant you had to be a recluse or. Uh, separate yourself from the rest of society. I hear you. All right. Now, one thing I wanted to mention was uh, the article on Ronnie Reigns and roller derby, because I'm actually, um, I, I would say, a casual roller derby fan. <laughs> I'm, I'm, is, it, is it still going on these days? Well, I'm a student of professional wrestling, so uh, we everybody who sort of follows professional wrestling as a, like a uh, researcher, sort of, um, knows about roller derby. Uh -huh. And so when I read it, I was like, wow, a roller derby article, this is great. Oh, man, Ronnie Reigns was the greatest. And um, and a lot of people don't realize that roller derby was actually really, really big for a long time in America. And oh, yeah, it was pretty uh, huge. Um, the heyday for uh, roller games, as they called them, uh, was early uh, 70s, mid-70s. There was a period there where it was on. TV every uh, weekend, the Los Angeles uh, Thunderbirds, that's the team Ronnie Reigns was on. And yeah, it got uh, pretty popular. Reigns was the ultimate showman. Originally, he was uh, an adversary of the Thunderbirds. He was on whatever different teams they had, the New York Bombers, and he was back then known as uh, Psycho Ronnie Reigns. Psycho in a bad way. He was... Yeah. He'd do whatever nasty things to defeat his opponents. When he went to the uh, L.A. Thunderbirds, he transformed into a good guy, you know, the same thing they do in wrestling. Yep, yep. He, he was still the uh, psycho. <laughs> he did all these hilarious antics, none of which uh, a lot of, from what I've uh, been able to gather, a lot of the uh, films of... Uh, you know, the Thunderbirds, a lot of that was destroyed by the owner. So oh, man. the classic Ronnie Rain stuff, unless uh, somebody else can uh, 
track it down is basically gone. I have a few videotapes I've been able to acquire over the years, but none of it was the real classic, hilarious, funny stuff <laughs> that Reigns uh, used to do. And I, uh, you know, uh, I he was he was obviously a huge influence on uh, professional wrestling. None of these guys nowadays. You know, could hold a uh, candle to him. I like uh, the one guy I've seen who I thought's pretty good is Mick Foley. Okay, yeah, yep. And he does some funny stuff that's on the par with uh, Ronnie Reigns as well. Yeah, Ronnie Reigns was just a oh, just hilarious performer. So grown and, and a very talented athlete too. Of course, that's uh, yeah. They always get tagged with uh, you know, the, it's a tough sport in general, wrestling or roller derby. Yeah. And um, so you, growing up in California, you must have been right in the thick of the roller derby uh, mania then. <laughs> I guess. I, I, I'm not sure uh, if it ever really was a mania. It, it, it didn't get anywhere as big as uh, wrestling is these uh, days. I think the mania was... That's probably what they're trying to make us think that it was. Uh, <laughs> they used to advertise it as America's fastest growing spectator sport on the promo to <laughs> roller derby and roller games. But, uh, you know, it, it got uh, somewhat uh, popular, but it was never huge. It had kind of almost a fringy cult following. Yeah, sort of like professional wrestling did before it. Uh, yeah, and I, I was. Got I was mainstream acceptance. I was into uh, professional wrestling back then, uh, big time wrestling. Okay. And some of the there were some pretty strange, funny performers there. Uh, one was the Great Mephisto. Yep, yep. And uh, this this was the period of time you had Ray Stevens and Peter Maiva and Kenji Shibuya. Okay, yeah, the good the good old days of professional <laughs> wrestling before uh, before it got all corporate. Yeah, and one one guy I'm getting into these days uh, is uh, going back and looking at the uh, films of El Santo. Oh uh, yes, El Santo, uh, probably one of Mexico's greatest wrestlers of all time. Oh no, the the greatest. Yes, well, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Buried with his mask on. Is that right? Yeah, I've never heard that. Well, I'm just kind of getting into uh, researching his history. Maybe I'll write something about uh, the great one. Yes, uh, yeah, he was buried with his mask on. He was uh, that famous. I don't think anyone ever saw him without his mask, and his son is actually probably um, one of Mexico's biggest stars now. So. Oh, okay. El Hijo del Santo. There you go. Yeah. Um, now, what do you think happened with uh, with Roller Derby? Why do you think it just died out like that? Um, part of the problem, from what I gathered, is just the expense uh, of putting on these uh, the performances, you need performances or whatever you want to call them. Uh, you need, and they're having problems with it today. They're trying to bring back some, uh, they have all girl leagues now with roller derby. Oh, really? They're, yeah, yeah. They're big in Texas and some other place and they're using real sexy young ladies. And that's the problem they've had uh, bringing it back over the years, just the, uh, expense of doing it, and you need a uh, special bank uh, track. So basically you need auditoriums uh, 
set up for these or if you're going to be moving that uh, bank track around, that's a pretty expensive uh, prospect. So, you know, I think a lot of it was the uh, cost and being able to uh, sustain all of that. Yeah. Well, they tried to make What's up? Go ahead. Well, they say they tried to make a comeback uh, 15 years ago or so on a syndicated show. Um, I think you mentioned it in the article, actually. Roller, uh, roller. Well, it was called Roller Games, I think. Oh yeah, yeah. It's been that long now. Yeah. Kind of an extreme version of. Uh, yeah, it had the wall and. Uh, yeah, it was pretty. Yeah, they had like six teams and they had the Thunderbirds on there. So, but that only lasted one season. That was on syndication. So, apparently, it wasn't. Uh, it didn't really. And then they tried again, uh, maybe five years ago. Yeah, but, you know, part of it, I'm sure, has to do with the uh, personalities they get. You know, they really need some strong personalities like a Ronnie Reigns to yeah. sustain that, you know. You have, you know, you have some of those in uh, wrestling now, and they're making big money, so why they want to... <laughs> I, I think that's how it would have to happen. Somebody would have to put a lot of money into it once again and really cultivate some uh, big stars yeah and of course you need a lot of sex in there as well yeah well and, uh, there's so much competition these days too you know oh for entertainment yeah yeah i know what you mean exactly yeah yeah well it's uh yeah roller derby is a pretty um obscure sort of sport genre that uh not too many people they only hear about it in passing or something <laughs> but it's a pretty fascinating little yeah it was, it was once again yeah one of those niches during that period of time yeah, you know, I was just at the right age at the right time to be exposed to it. And um, all right, and the final thing I want to ask you about on the beast of is uh, Greg Bishop and how you blew your cover in the beginning. And you you uh, you must be friends with Greg Bishop then, right? Damn him, I was. <laughs> I mean, what are you guys uh, running buddies or something out there in California? Um, let's see how our relationship started. Uh, Kind of writing for the same magazines uh, in the early uh, 90s. Once again, I got involved in the whole uh, zine movements, uh, all the underground publishing going on. I gravitated towards those magazines that were doing uh, conspiracies and paranormal and all this type of stuff. And that had a certain sensibility, sense of humor, and the excluded middle was one of those magazines along with Crash Collusion and uh, Steam Shovel Press. So uh, Network started uh, back then with uh, myself, Greg Bishop, uh, Robert Larson was involved with Excluded Metal, Peter Stinchel, then you had Crash Collusion with uh, West Nations. You also had uh, a guy who goes by the pseudonym of John Carter who wrote uh, Sex and Rockets about uh, John Whitesides Parsons. Uh, who else am I forgetting? Ken Thomas was one of the groups, Steam Shovel Press. And so networking with these folks, and eventually uh, we agreed to start meeting up once a year at events we called Cookouts. <laughs> uh, uh, different places out in the desert. Uh, Met in Sedona one year, and and so anyway, just started a uh, group of like-minded souls that uh, get together, you know, people into all this wacky stuff, and so that's how I met uh, Greg going to the uh, kookouts and 
you know, I've been a frequent contributor to uh, the excluded middle, and also Greg is a renowned uh, UFO hoaxer. Oh, really? Yep. Why do you say that? At uh, one of our uh, cookouts, he staged a uh, UFO uh, hoax. Oh, no. Basically, uh, <laughs> <laughs> since he exposed me, I'll expose him here. He used some <laughs> kind of Chinese lamp that was uh, tethered with a, put a balloon balloon to it and yeah. uh, put it up there. Actually, I helped him launch it and moved it back over to the rest of the group. And it was up there for a few minutes, and all of a sudden, I was like, wow, what's that over there? <laughs> <laughs> and so... <laughs> They eventually figured it out, but yeah, there you go. I can't trust him. Oh no! So that's pretty cool. You got like, you used to love these cookouts. Um, we try to. It's been a couple of years since we had one. There's going to be a uh, someone pro uh, proposed. No, I forgot. Uh, yeah, Miles Lewis is another uh, person involved with cookouts. He. Uh, has a website, Elf Infested Spaces is a magazine he uh, put out. His website is elfist.net. Anyway, Miles uh, suggested uh, in April we all go out to a retro UFO symposium they're having in Flanders, California there at Giant Rock, okay, yeah. where the Integratron is. We Previously, we had a uh, kook out in that area, so maybe uh, if we can get everybody together, we'll try to do that again uh, this year. Nice, nice. All right, now is there anything else in the Beast of that you think I should touch on that people would uh, be interested in before we move on to the Thornleaf book? I think we covered uh, a lot of ground there on yeah, the Beast. Yeah, there's, there's tons of other stuff in there. I, I highly recommend it. I, it's a great read, especially um, if you're like me, you're just discovering uh, Adam Go Rightly. Pick up the book, you can read it. There's excerpts from the other books, and then, you know, you're going to be like, I want all of these other books. Damn right. That's how I felt when I finished it. I was like, where's this Manson book? I want to read it. Cool. With all the books, once again, uh, you can get them at adamgorightly.com, and uh, I can sell them to you directly there if uh, folks want signed copies. That does it for this week's edition of Been All of America Audio Season 1. Next week, more with Adam Go Rightly. We're going to talk about Kerry Thornley and how he got wrapped up into the Kennedy assassination and his fascinating story. And that, of course, will be next week on December 10th, 2005. I want to thank Adam Go Rightly for sitting down and talking to us. I also want to thank Leslie and Chiron of BenAllOfAmerica.com for your continued support and help with the audio series. And, of course, I want to thank all you great listeners out there who have been following us along here at Benall of America Audio Season 1. Until you hear from me next week, this is Tim Benall, signing off. <laughs>